0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. Today is episode number 17, and our big Bible question is, what is the central event of Christianity? We also got some great quotes for you on the resurrection and a word on discernment bloggers. So today's Bible reading is Genesis 18, Nehemiah 7, Matthew 17 and Acts 17. And I do want to point you to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. It's going to have 20 great and encouraging quotes on the resurrection for you today. I'm not going to read all of those on the show because it would make the show uh, way too long. But there's some great ones there from early church fathers and from uh, more recent people that talk about the importance of the resurrection. And yes, that's going to be our focus for the day. Uh, and again, BibleReadingPodcast.com is where you can find that every day. I make a blog post for the podcast episode, so you can look up anything you might have missed there. If you have a Bible question that you want us to cover on the show, just leave it as a comment on the blog. Now, I have not yet put a contact section on BibleReadingPodcast.com. That is because on my other website, ChaseATompson.com, I get about, oh, I don't know, 15 or so emails a day through the contact form there. Many of those are in Russian. Lots of others of those are uh, pornography type things and stuff I just don't want. So I'm uh, probably going to remove the contact form from that website. And so if you want to get in touch with me, just leave a comment on the blog or message me through Facebook or Twitter or something like that. That's the best way to do it. I do want to encourage you, speaking briefly of social media, share the show if you get a chance. We're trying to encourage people to join with us for daily Bible reading. This show is not about yearly Bible reading. It's about daily Bible reading, and we want to invite people to come along, pick up the Word of God, Learn from it, walk in it, obey it, follow it, and that can happen any day of the week. And the best way it happens is by word of mouth or by you sharing it on social media to reach other people. So today, once again, we are faced with several thick and significant scriptural passages. You look in Genesis 18, it features three Uh, men, in quotes, visiting Abraham and Sarah, one of whom is God himself. It also features an incredible intercessory conversation between God and Abraham. They kind of go back and forth about the fate of Sodom, and it's fascinating to hear how the boldness of Abraham and the response of God in that, uh, in that discussion, which very much sounds like a, a prayer type situation. In Matthew 17, we see the transfiguration of Jesus and his meeting with Moses and Elijah high atop a mountain. And in Nehemiah, well, We have another one of those chapters that is almost completely names and numbers, and I'm sure I'm going to just outright butcher several of those Hebrew names, but most especially Nefishesim and Pakareth Hatsibim. Uh, I'm sure all our Hebrew listeners and Hebrew professors out there that listen to the show are cringing just to hear me say those names, but I'm trying my best. Our feature t- chapter today is going to be Acts chapter 17, because it is strongly focused on the resurrection, and I believe, and I believe the Bible teaches, the resurrection is the central event of our faith, the central linchpin of Christianity. There's literally nothing I enjoy more than talking about the resurrection and rational reasons to believe that Jesus Christ really truly historically raised from the dead. Now if that's the kind of thing that's interesting to you, I do want to point out that I have a book on Amazon. It's called Easter Fact or Fiction, 20 Reasons to Believe That Jesus Rose From the Dead. Um, and you might want to go check that out. And uh, it it like I said, it's available on Amazon. Let's get into our Bible passage today. Acts chapter 17, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they search for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, "These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Jesus." crowd and city officials who heard these things were very upset after taking a security bond from jason and the others they released them as soon as it was night the brothers and sisters sent paul and silas away to Berea. upon arrival they went into the synagogue of the jews The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters the immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worshiped God as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, He seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching that you are presenting, because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect, for as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which it was inscribed, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, hmm, We'd like to hear you more about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Great passage, Acts 17. So many wonderful episodes and things that happen here. I would be remiss not to mention the noble Bereans who eagerly received God's word through Paul and searched the word of God daily to confirm the teachings of Paul. For this response, Paul commends them as of more noble character than the Thessalonians. No offense, Thessalonians. Many online ministries, often called discernment ministries or discernment blogs or things like that, They've sought to emulate these noble Bereans by evaluating the teaching of many Bible teachers and judging whether or not that teaching lines up with the Bible. Here's the thing. That's great to a degree. As a pastor, I want the people in our church to search the scriptures, to know the scriptures, to follow the scriptures, and to measure my teaching against the scriptures. I don't want them to take something I say as gospel truth. I want them to be in the Bible and I want them to hold the teaching of the Bible above my teaching in every case. Discernment is wonderful and biblical, but the Boreans eagerly heard the word They did not have the posture of professional critics. They weren't hanging on Paul's words to judge them and then go and post on their blog or their website or whatever all the errors they perceived. They eagerly listened and then they confirmed the truth of Paul's teaching with the Word, not as professional critics, but as eager listeners who valued the Word of God. The body of Christ does not need people whose sole purpose is to watchdog and attack and tear down other ministries. People who spend all their time criticizing may not realize it, but they will slowly become monsters, worse than those they are criticizing. When you set yourself up as the judge and arbiter of all that is biblically orthodox, you're kind of assuming a position for yourself that is not really available in the Bible or in Christianity. So yes, Call people to passionately, call them passionately to biblical truth, but take care that you yourself don't violate God's commands on how to do so. And take care that you do not become a professional or a hobbyist criticizer, rather Be an encourager. Be an exhorter. The world is way overpopulated with critics. We don't need more critics. We don't need more people who are just watchdogging every ministry out there. Look, I know some ministries that just, they raise money. They raise support. They get eyeballs on their blogs. And I don't hate blogs. I'm a blogger. I mean, that would be hypocritical of me to say that that's all wrong. But, Raising attention to yourself, raising funds by attacking other people who may be Christians or at least claim to be is dangerous. I'm not saying that we should just uh, live and let live essentially when it comes to the Word of God because the fact is there are tons and tons and tons of false teachers out there. My goodness, almost every teacher you see on television with a huge crowd, I worry that they're not being faithful to the Word of God, but they're doing a lot of sunshine pumping. And that scares me. But let me tell you, if I devoted my life to criticizing every teaching of popular preachers out there and warning a small flock of online followers to stay away from them, something terrible would happen in my heart and dangerous. Because when we give ourselves to a life of criticism and judgment, we go to a dangerous place. We need faithful biblical truth holders who will walk in uncompromising doctrinal truth, but will also walk in uncompromising humility and gentle love. Okay, that was kind of a soapbox issue for me. Um, Back to Acts 17. And in that passage, we see Paul bring up the resurrection of Jesus three times in three different circumstances to the people of Thessalonica, to the men of Athens and during his message at the Areopagus. In all three instances we see how crucial and central the message of the resurrection is to Paul. So in verse 2, Paul went to the synagogue as usual and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. And then we see in Acts 17 verse 18, that the men of Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, they were saying that Paul was preaching something foreign. Because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That was his core message. And it was so stimulating to them that these philosophers brought Paul to their philosopher club at the Areopagus. And then Paul spoke there. And he says he's provided proof of everything I'm teaching. God has provided proof, says Paul, to the pagites of everything I'm teaching you by raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, to Paul, the central message of Christianity is the resurrection, and the central proof of the validity of Christianity is the fact that Jesus was killed, and that he rose again, and he was seen by hundreds of people, literally. Very little else of what Paul proclaims in these instances as mentioned. But in every case, he keeps pointing back to that one central massive truth. Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead. It's the center of the Christian faith. It's the central truth. And this primary claim that everything else radiates out from. And you really, really see this super clear in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection chapter, the resurrection chapter of the Bible. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages because it, it kind of just lays it all on the line for us about what Christianity is about. This is what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, says Paul, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and so is your faith. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if the dead are not wrong raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, hear this, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have also perished. They've rotted away. Verse 19, here it is. Paul says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anybody. Did you catch that? If Christians are just following Jesus because, I don't know, he offers comfort or because he's a good moral teacher or something ridiculous like that, then they're to be more pitied than anybody, says Paul. Now here's the thing, there's a lot of churches and denominations, very common denominations and churches out in the world, they have drifted so far away from biblical truth that they've essentially humanized Jesus. Despite the fact that the message from the earliest days of the first century Christian church has been Christ crucified and raised from the dead, some church-going people think that the miracles in the Bible are myths, legends, and exaggerations. And some scholars will tell you, oh, the early church, they legendized Jesus. They changed the scriptures. He was just a good teacher, but they added to it later on. Hey, the fact of the matter is, there's absolutely no textual proof of such things. There's nothing that demonstrated that the early church or the Vatican or the government or anybody changed the scriptures in the new testament no evidence of that the dan brown hypothesis is bunk the early church did not change the scriptures and and make them amplify them for their own needs or whatever that that's a bunch of hogwash and in, in some churches out there, they teach that the real miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was that Jesus taught people to che- to share. They teach that Jesus didn't really walk on water, but he walked on a shallow, slightly underwater shoal in the water. They teach that Jesus didn't truly rise from the dead, but that he just lives on in our hearts and in the memories of his followers. But yeah, of course, his natural body is dying and decaying hogwash all of that paul says that this type of attitude a miracleless resurrectionless christianity is the most pitiful thing in the entire world and i couldn't agree more over and over and over again in acts we've seen the earliest p- apostles and teachers proclaim this one primary truth jesus rose from the dead christian Friend, let that be the center of your witness, your proclamation, your discussion with your friends of the good news of Jesus as well. In that, the resurrection of Jesus is hope. in that is truth. in that is the good news to a lost and dying world. I'm going to hit you with a couple of these quotes just to whet your appetite for it. Once again, you can find them at our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. One of my favorite quotes on the resurrection is from C.S. Lewis, and he writes. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the, quote, first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Another great quote is from Augustine, writing in the late 300s, early 400s. He died, says Augustine of Jesus, But he vanquished death. In himself he put an end to what we feared. He took it upon himself and he vanquished it. As a mighty hunter, he captured and slew the lion. Where is death? Seek it in Christ, for it exists no longer. But it did exist and now it's dead. O life, O death of death! Man, that's a great line. The death of death. Be of good heart, says Augustine. Augustine, It will die in us also. What has taken place in our head will take place in his members. Death will die in us also. But when? At the end of the world. At the resurrection of the dead in which we believe. And concerning which we do not doubt. So that's it. That's the core of our faith. That is everything. And I got to tell you as often as I do this podcast, I'm going to take almost every opportunity possible to talk about the resurrection, because that is our hope, that is our message, that is our joy, and it's so central and important. And I appreciate you allowing me that indulgence. Now let's go on to our other scriptures. This is Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up, and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground, and said, My lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be bought, that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread, so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later you can continue on. Yes, they replied, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender cho- choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. Oh, there in the tent, he answered. The Lord said... I will certainly come back to you in a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, No, you did laugh. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, Will will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, you could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the fifty righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Then he spoke to him again, I suppose Forty are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of forty. Then he said, Let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak further. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Then he said, Since I venture to speak to my Lord, suppose twenty are found there? He replied, I will not destroy it on account of twenty. Then he said, let not my Lord be angry and I will speak uh, one more time. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it on account of ten. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 1, heaven help me. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeeper singers and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, Do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot, and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put it in my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judah to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rahamiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. The number of Israelite men included Parash's descendants, 2,172, shephatiah's descendants, 372, Ara's descendants, 652, Pehath-Moab's descendants, Jeshua and Joab's descendants, 2,818, Elam's descendants, 1,254. Zatu's descendants, 845. Zakai's descendants, 760. Benui's descendants, 648. Bebai's descendants, 628. Asgad's descendants, 2,322. Adonaikam's descendants, 667. Bigvi's descendants, 2,067. Aden's descendants, 655. Atter's descendants of Hezekiah, 98. Hashem's descendants, 328. Bezai's descendants, 324. Hareph's descendants, 112. Gibeon's descendants, 95. Bethlehem's and Netophah's men, 188. Anatoth's men, 128. Beth Asmaveth's men, 42. Kiriath Jiram, Shephira, and Biroth's men, 743. Ramaz and Geba's men, 621. Mikmas men, 122. Bethel's and Ai's men, 123. The other Nebo's men, 52. The other Elam's people, 1,254. Haram's people, 320. Jericho's people, 345. Lod's, Hadid's, and Ono's people, 721. Sinaa's people, 3930. Yeah, way to go, Sana'a. The priests included... Jediah's descendants of the house of Jeshua, 973. Emmer's descendants, 1052. Pashur's descendants, 1247. Haram's descendants, 1017. The Levites included Jeshua's descendants of Cadmiel, Hodavai's descendants, 74. The Singers included Asaph's descendants, 148. The Gatekeepers included Shalom's descendants, Atter's descendants, Talmun's descendants, Akub's descendants, Hatita's descendants, Shobai's descendants. One hundred thirty-eight, the temple servants included, Zeha's descendants, Hasufa's descendants, Tabaoth's descendants. Keros' descendants, Sia's descendants, Pedan's descendants, Lebanon's descendants, Hagabah's descendants, Shalmai's descendants, Hanan's descendants, Gedel's descendants, Gehar's descendants, Rieha's descendants, Rezin's descendants, Nekoda's descendants, Getzam's descendants, Utsa's descendants, Pasea's descendants, Bezai's descendants, Meunim's descendants, Nefeshisham's descendants, Babkuk's descendants, Hakufa's descendants, Harher's descendants, Basleth's descendants, Meheda's descendants, Harsha's descendants, Barkosa's descendants, Sisera's descendants, Tema's descendants, Naziah's descendants, Hatifa's descendants. Hmm. The descendants of Solomon's servants included Sotai's descendants, Sophareth's descendants, Parida's descendants, Jaala's descendants, Darkon's descendants, Gedel's descendants, Shephatiah's descendants, Hatiel's descendants, Palkareth Hatzapim's descendants, Ammon's descendants, all the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants, 392. The following are those who came from Telmela. Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer, but were unable to prove that their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelite. Deliah's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, and Nicodah's descendants, 642. And from the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakoz, and the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and who bore their name." These searched for their entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found, so they were disqualified from the priesthood. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and Thummim. The whole combined assembly numbered 42,360, not including their 7,337 male and female servants, as well as their 245 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the family heads contributed to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bowls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family heads gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver minus to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minus, and 67 priestly garments. The priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all Israel settled into their towns. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled into their towns, comma, and yes, that is where Nehemiah 6 ends. I'm sorry, Nehemiah 7. A very strange chapter distinction there, and that was 73 verses, my friends, and lots and lots and lots of fascinating Hebrew names and numbers. Matthew 17. Verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, "'Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll set up uh, three shelters here for you, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah.'" While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah is already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, They did whatever they pleased to him, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt before them. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we drive it out? because of your little faith, he told them. For truly I tell you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. When they came to Capernaum, Those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Uh, yes, he said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Um, from strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But, so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. I hope it is a blessing and an encouragement to you. We will be back tomorrow for episode number 18. Please share this with a friend, tell them about it, and check out the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and Godspeed to you.